Well, hello everyone and welcome to ODI. I'm Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. I'm really delighted to welcome you all both online and here in the room on a Friday morning, which is very impressive you know, to see so many people in London on a Friday morning, uh, to this conversation to really reflect on uh, the lessons um, from the first few years of operation of uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the newest of the multilateral development banks, and you know what lies ahead. Um, for the bank. Uh, I mean, multilateral development banks play a unique role among development financiers because of their convening power, because of their cross-country knowledge and expertise, and because allegedly they're supposed to provide finance at uh, better terms than what the capital markets may offer. That is debatable, but we can, <laughs> we can reflect on that in the conversation. But the research that we're doing here at ODI has found that actually, you know, the World Bank and uh, major regional multilateral um, uh, banks are actually considered by many, particularly borrowing countries, um, to be too inflexible, to be bureaucratic, and actually to be dominated by the political priorities of uh, non-borrowing you know, shareholders. So in response to these challenges, you know, to these you know, perceived barriers, low- and middle-income countries have started creating their own purpose-built bilateral, regional bilateral, multilateral um, institutions that can provide that market-based public lending. And so when the AIB began operations in 2016, I think it was seen you know, by many as uh, a major disruptor in the system of existing multilateral development banks because it was offering a leaner governance model, you know, leaner operations. I mean, some of the features um, the AIB put on the table was to have a non-resident board of directors um, to have you know, clear, a clear accountability framework with a clear division of labor between the board and management and also a departure from uh, um, the country office model of managing programs. And despite its name, the AIB actually has worldwide membership. Um, so we have no regional members outside Asia that can borrow to a certain extent. But it does remain a bank where China retains more than a quarter of the AIB shares. It's headquartered in Beijing, um, and it has been perceived as, you know, mainly sort of focusing on the implementation of the One Belt and Road Initiative. Um, in fact, some large shareholders of other institutions are not members of the AIB. But today's discussion is really timely because, you know, the recent UN General Assembly high-level segment at the recent annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank, there have actually been some pretty high-profile calls for reform of the Bretton Woods institutions. And in response to a call largely from you know, G7 members, the World Bank has started their reform process you know, to try and better deliver on poverty eradication, on prosperity, um, on shared prosperity, and on global challenges like climate change, um, global health, global public health, and peace and security. So this is a good moment to ask what lessons we can learn from the experience of the IIB, you know, from its operations, from, you know, the things it's tried to do um, differently. Um, has the IIB been the disruptor to the system of the MDBs that, you know, many argued could be when it was first established? And what is the IIB going to look like in the future, you know, in terms of sectors of operations, modalities, engagement with client countries. The AIB has just had its annual meeting um, last week, virtual annual meeting, so I'm sure there'll be plenty to, um, to hear um, about, you know, to reflect from what has emerged from the online discussions. And to address these questions, who better than Sir Danny Alexander, really delighted to welcome you 
to ODI. Um, so Danny is the vice president for policy and strategy at uh, AIB. Um, and in his role, he drives AIB's strategic di uh, direction, including sectoral and country priorities, investment strategy and programming, and its operating budget. Um, previously, Sir Danny served as the AIB's vice president and corporate secretary when he first joined the bank in 2016. But I'm sure our UK audience will remember that you know, Sir Danny was also the chief secretary to the treasury um, here in the UK. And one of the leaders of the UK coalition government between 2010 and 2015. Uh, but joining um, Zerdani, we have two wonderful colleagues, um, Sir Suma Chakabarti, he's the chair of the board of trustees here at ODI, but obviously he was uh, for 10 years the president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and prior to that, the permanent secretary at the Department for International Development and at the Ministry of Justice, amongst many other things. Um, and <laughs> joining Suma and Danny, we have Annalisa Prizon. Annalisa is one of our senior research fellows at ODI, and she leads our work on strategies and finances of multilateral development banks. Uh, so a fantastic panel to address um, these questions. There will be time um, to put questions to them in addition to the ones I'll be um, asking. Um, so if you are joining us online, please start fielding your questions right away. Um, put your name, institution, country you're joining from, and the team will uh, um, pass them on to me. And please do tweet, amplify the conversation online, um, sort of uh, say what you think or uh, um, to share some of the, the most uh, relevant pieces of the conversation. Uh, the hashtag is ReformMDBs and do tag ODI underscore global in your tweets. So um, what lesson can we draw from the first six years of operations of the AIB? Okay, so I mean, firstly, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for the kind introduction and for the invitation to, to be here. And it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here amongst so many experts. So I'm also in, very interested to listen to, to, to you. Um, and so I will not go on for too long, but it's also a, a pleasure particularly to be on the same panel with, with, uh, with Suma, um, uh, who as president of the EBRD was also a very strong supporter of uh, and, and, and close partner with the AIB in the early years of our development. But I first got to know Suma when he was permanent secretary at the Ministry of Justice, and I was the chief secretary to the Treasury, um, responsible for implementing the fiscal consolidation that was going on then. So it seems sort of a bit, um, a bit, sort of, a, bit um, <laughs> a bit, a bit Groundhog Dayish to be back here when uh, it seems that that's all, being, all all happening all over again. Very sadly. Um, anyway, I won't go into UK politics, but um, maybe another time. Um, but the, the only reason to mention that is because actually it was in that period that I first got involved with discussions around the AIB because um, it was one of the uh, one of the last decisions, if you like, that the that the coalition government made was that the UK should become one of the founding members of the of the of the AIB. And I mean, some of the issues that you mentioned in your introduction were very much topics of debate at that time. You know, what was the real intention of of of, of creating the the, the 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 AIB? Was it being set up? Um, to disrupt or even undermine the existing multilateral system, um, or was it as as we believed then, and as as the reality has become now, to to become part of this um, global system of multilateral development banks supporting development in different ways among our our, our members? And so, um, so after 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 the. Uh, after the voters gave me an opportunity to seek a different career uh, in 2015, um, uh, to put it that way, um, uh, uh, the chance to go and actually be involved in setting up a new multilateral development bank is, is really a, 
a remarkable thing, and I feel very fortunate to have had that to had that chance actually to be part of setting up the AIB. Um, I mean, one might say it's almost too early to learn lessons, but let me let me still try and and and, and highlight a few. Um, so, you know, in in the in the in the first period of the bank, we really uh, and naturally the focus was on um, the quality of the governance of the institution uh, in the context of the non-resident board. Um, it was on the uh, uh, the, 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 the high standards in terms of the projects that we uh, that we do, um, uh, uh, and it was on the, 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 the if you like the sound foundations of the institution, including the financial sustainability of the of the of the institution, um, and on starting to build a program, um, and then as time developed to um, to think through strategically where we think AIB can really make an impact in terms of of of, of, of development. And so I think there are, uh, I, I, I wouldn't describe the intention of the AIB as to disrupt the, 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 the system, but I think there are some innovations that, that are um, you know, built into the way that we work, which I think, I think can be reflected upon. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, uh, I know Suma has a strong interest in this also, but you know, one is in, re in respect of governance. So uh, we have a non-resident board of, of directors um, that before COVID would meet on a quarterly basis in Beijing. Um, and then at other times virtually, and and in the last sort of two and a half, three years, has been meeting virtually, um, but where our directors are not, you know, full time officials based in the institution, they are uh, senior officials in their in their own respective governments who have a substantial part of their time devoted to uh, to AIB matters, and that that's led us to think through um, in a way that certainly in our institutional setting is I think quite a constructive discussion, which is what is the right balance of responsibilities between between board and, and, and management? I know those are issues that 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 come up in, in 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 other institutions, but where you know we've focused on the idea that the board needs to lead the policies, needs to set the policies, it needs to lead this the, the strategy formation. It has to hold the management accountable for delivery against those um, against those goals. And that means that there's a premium on high quality information sharing and and uh, discussions around that. But in respect of operations, We've put in place an accountability framework, which which um, is designed to uh, allow approval of a, a reasonable portion of our projects to be delegated to our president, um, and that's 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 started to work. Now, obviously, as the bank grows, this will become more and more important. Um, you know, the number of approvals will grow every 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 year, um, and so having a board that is focused on the, that's setting the strategy and the policy and the internal accountability. Um, but having a management which can which can deliver the projects, um, although our accountability framework still leaves a substantial proportion of projects to go to the board, um, and also gives directors a call-in right if there's any project that they see particular issues with, or our president can refer a project to the board, even if it was going to be delegated. And that's an ongoing discussion with our board about how do we how do we um, uh, you know develop and enhance that framework. But I think it has been. Um, uh, it's worked quite well, and certainly we, we we don't have sort of pushback against it. It's more about how can we further augment it to make it work, uh, make it work better. Now, the setting of each institution is different, so I wouldn't say uh, that's a that's that's a. It, it's, it, it, we don't have a non-resident board as a model for others to follow. We have a non-resident board as appropriate in our own institutional setting, um, but I think it works pretty well. Um, second one is uh, around the kind of business model of the of the of the of the bank. So. Um, we have a, uh, a kind of you know core value summarized as lean, clean, and green, 
before you come to the green one a, a little bit later. But um, and the, the clean is a common ground across all the across all the MDBs. You know, high project standards, anti-corruption, um, uh, strong project monitoring, and 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 and, and so forth. Um, but the lean is really trying to say, um, can we, you know, can we operate this institution efficiently? Can we be responsive and agile um, in how we deal with with, um, with 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 emerging client needs? Can we can we as an institution as we develop, not need to develop every function for ourselves, but instead work in partnership with others? Um, and that's something that we're that we're stepping up further now. Rodrigo, who's sitting in the front row, has joined us as the director general of our new operational partnership department because we need to further strengthen and develop those partnerships. So for example, um, you know, we, we've co-financed quite a lot of projects with other MDBs and especially in the, in the early uh, years of the bank, that was really important to us as a way of getting the program going, also being able to learn from others. But we deliberately in our, in our policy design said that, that if another institution has a policy framework the same as ours, functionally the same as ours, then we don't have to go through the same, we don't have to duplicate all the processes around it. You know, we can take the EBRD's work for the World Bank's work on um, on environmental and social assessments and apply them through our own process, rather than from the client's point of view, having to do everything twice. Um, and again, I think that works quite well, and I think that's something that, that, that could be emulated. You know, all institutions as they grow have within them the capacity to become bureaucratic. Um, and so, I I I, um, I cannot I cannot say that 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 battle to be a lean institution is 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 sort of won. What I can say is that it's a strong focus of the management. You know, our president Jin Li Chun, who is an incredibly impressive individual, has this as 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 really something that he believes is very very important. That we that 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 the resources of the bank, to the greatest extent possible, go into the operations, go into supporting the, the clients. And that's also part of the explanation of our approach to what you talked about, about country offices and, and so forth. So um, for a long time, we've only had the headquarters in, in Beijing um, and staff have traveled to clients and, 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 and we use local consultants or other partners on the ground. Um, we're starting now to, um, to explore having some presence in other places. We're opening at the moment an operational hub in Abu Dhabi, which we've chosen as a location because of its very good transport connections to so many of our of our, of our client countries. But the reason for, for, for taking time over that was firstly to consolidate the, the headquarters and make sure that was working very well. And secondly, to think about a different model that, 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 um, that, that of, of having a local presence that would be uh, effective in terms of being in contact with the clients and being able to be on site with the projects, but at the same time, not becoming either a, a large cost center or a rival power center to the, to, to the, to the, to the headquarters. So that's something still in progress, but I think after Abu Dhabi, we will open probably several more in the in the in the years to come. But with a view to having hubs in important locations, rather than a country office being an entitlement for every um, for every member. So driven by the by the by the business needs. Now again, every institution has a different model. So I'm not saying these things as as, as a challenge to others, but simply to say within AIB's context, this is what we thought was the was the was the was the was the right way to go. Um, uh, so. You know, I think that the, on, on the on the governance, um, on the standards, um, on the financial standards, that has all worked quite well. Um, uh, and and you you I mean you 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 I think quite rightly um, in the sense of um, uh, as of a of a provocation almost mentioned the location of the bank and and, and those questions. Um, and 
look, AIB is a multilateral institution. So we are led by our board. We're led by all of our members. We don't follow the agenda of any one uh, of any one institution. And actually, like others, we have to be apolitical in the way that we make our decisions. And and I think those concerns that you mentioned, which were very prevalent when AIB was first being proposed, I think are now put to bed. Um, you know, AIB doesn't follow any country's bilateral agenda, whether it's the uh, the Belt and Road Initiative or Build Back Better World or whatever it may be. Um, we have our own strategy, which we approved in 2020, which gives us a focus on what we call infrastructure for tomorrow. So that means thinking about what kind of infrastructure do we think our members are going to need for the next few decades of their development, which gives us a large focus on climate, um, on connectivity, both cross-border connectivity and digital connectivity, and on private capital mobilization. So I guess another area where I think we've also learned a lot from the EBRD is that um, you know, we, we do public and private sector. We aim by 2030 to be 50-50 between the two. Um, but we're doing it from the same balance sheet. We're not dividing the institution into two parts, one sovereign, one non-sovereign. I think in that respect, quite similar to the way uh, EBRD was operating. And I think that, that, that works well. Our teams, you know, our sector teams will work on both sovereign and non-sovereign projects. And I think that versatility is also important to being agile and responsive um, to, the, to the clients. I think so far that works well, but there's a lot of growth to come. So I think I've already gone on longer than I said I would in answer to your first question, but um, I hope that gives you the, give everyone a wee bit of context um, no, about how we're, how we're going. We've already touched on a few things that I wanted to ask in terms of the future of the IAB. You know, what is the future going to look like in terms of sectors of operation, modalities of um, engagement? You've already touched on the hubs, but tell us a little bit about where you, you you're trying to take the bank. Yeah. Um, so in in terms of the impact that we want to make is driven by that corporate strategy that I mentioned. So by 2025, at least 50% of our finance will be climate finance. By 2030, at least 50% will be non-sovereign. And by the middle of next year, all of our new projects will be aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, and then we have the priorities around cross-border connectivity, where we aim by 2030 for 25 to 30% of our operations to be uh, uh, cross-border connectivity and regional cooperation type um, type projects, which are, you know, cross-border ones are particularly complicated, obviously. Um, and so that's the kind of that's the direction that we that we um, that we that we want to, um, uh, to 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 go in. And I think that means um, that, I mean, well, so maybe one other thing to say, which is, the world's in a pretty tricky situation right now. There are so many challenges and crises. Um, you know, so so when COVID broke out, um, you know, we took the view as a multilateral institution, we have to play our full part in the kind of coordinated international response to, to the to the pandemic. So we set up a, a thirteen billion dollar crisis recovery facility, which has since been extended to twenty billion, um, which uh, was doing a, a number of different things. But but one thing that that we wouldn't do ourselves, but we decided we could do, in crisis response, was to co-finance budget support and policy-based financing for, for, for developing member member countries. And that was effective and and and, and well received. The other consequence it had for us was um, to say health is really important. You know, so we we started with a with a with an focus on economic infrastructure. And we decided you know, and we, we knew that social infrastructure is also infrastructure, right? But we had to have a, a focus. But we've added social infrastructure, especially health, um, as a as a as a as a focus, partly in response to the um, to the to the to the to the pandemic, and then um, and now we have you know on top of the pandemic the, the consequences of the war of the war in Ukraine we have the food and the fuel and 
all those things, which is creating a kind of perfect storm for developing member countries, especially with then the you know dollar interest rates going up, exchange rate changing, and all those things. And so I think that means that we're also thinking about how do we, in order to achieve the the, the, the corporate strategy goals, um, how are we going to diversify our instruments? How are we going to diversify um, uh, what we do on the non-sovereign side? Um, uh, how are we going to program more strategically our, our, our business to do multi-year programs with some of our sovereign clients, which we're just starting to do? Um, so, for example, our board is discussing at the moment um, introducing results-based financing as an AIB uh, financing modality. Um, we're thinking about how we can take the lessons of the COVID-19 crisis recovery and apply that um, in, in, in future. Um, uh, on climate, um, I think, you know, mobilizing private sector finance for climate is the is the is the key objective and it's a sort of major focus of international discussions in in in, in, in lots of ways right now um and so we're 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 um uh, developing relationships with a wider range of partners in that in that space um so i'm 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 really here in london for, for what two three days now on my way to egypt um for for for, for cop 27 and you know there's a range of partnerships there that we'll be taking forward with um uh, with with facilities and and philanthropic organisations and and so forth in order to expand the range of tools that we have. So maybe sorry, maybe to just come back one step, we don't have a concessional financing arm of AIB, so we don't have an, an IDA or, a, or or whatever. So um, our sovereign pricing is as a cooperative, you know, it's equivalent to the cheapest of the four buckets of the World Bank, and our non-sovereign pricing is done in a way that. Um, uh, that based on the risks of, that we see with the with the project, but designed not to crowd out the, the, the private sector, but to crowd it in. Um, uh, and so th that means that if we want to, um, you know, in certain cases, be able to offer better terms, then we have to do that by blending or working in partnership. Um, we have a couple of our own facilities that are donor funded. One is a project preparation special fund. I think project preparation is something we need to, you know, get more into. Um, uh, and then we're in the process of setting up something our board approved earlier this year, which is, we call it a special fund window for less developed members, which is an interest rate buy-down facility. So it's not a separate program, but it's designed to, uh, for the IDA-only members of AIB, once a project goes through our uh, approval system and meets all the other standards, that we can then reduce the interest rates on the loan by 100 basis points. And so that's again designed, you know, one, one of the lessons we learned in, in preparing our corporate strategy was that there were groups of members that, that we had not served as well as others. And, and the lower income members was one, one, such, uh, one such group. At the same time, AIB has the capacity from, we, we don't have a distinction between borrowing and non-borrowing members in our articles of agreement. So obviously our focus is on the, the, the low and middle income members of the bank. The focus is in Asia, but as you implied earlier, we can finance in non-regional members. We have a policy around that, which means for climate finance and connectivity, we can finance projects in non-regional members up to 15% of our of our approvals uh, on a on a rolling three year basis, um, and so ex developing our business in the in the non regionals within the scope of that policy is also um, important to, to building a diversified and balanced um, uh, 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 portfolio. Um, and so, look, I think globally, rightly, the the the, the pressure is on the MDBs to say, you know, can you deliver more? Um, and that's right. Um, and it's necessary in the in the in the in the circumstances that we see. Um, 
you know, AIB is kind of halfway through, if you like, the journey from the, the launch in, in, in January 2016, when I joined the <clears> bank, <throat> to the end of the corporate strategy period in 2030, which is by when we envisage the bank will be fully uh, mature in terms of its lending, if you like. So by then we should be <clears throat> committing around $15 million per year. So we're sort of halfway uh, along, that, along that journey, but we need to find ways not only to deploy our own capital for projects, but to deploy it smartly so that we are mobilizing much more of other people's money. And I think that's really, that's really crucial. And I'm not sure we know exactly how to do that. I'm not sure anybody knows exactly how to do that, but there are, there are, there are plenty of lessons we can learn from others. And, and I'm sure uh, advice that this audience will have. So I will stop there and uh, stop talking and start listening. So thank you well, very let, much. Let me try and get some of the advice for you. I mean, Suma, you were a very strong early supporter of the AIB and you know you envisaged the AIB could be really a disruptor um, to the system. Now we've heard from Danny that we shouldn't think of AIB as a disruptor but as an innovator. Um, so has he been an innovator and, and what challenges is he going to face in implementing its strategy? Um, you know, advice for Danny. <laughs> Please. Well, um, thank you very much, Sarah. And I'm really pleased to be on this panel. And pleased to be sitting next to Danny, um, a politician who, in my view, rare breed actually can you know speaks human, basically. Um, I mean, while while taking twenty five percent of the MOJ budget in the margins, we would discuss work life balance uh, because he had young children at the time. I remember, and uh, so um, real pleasure actually then to be working with him again when he went to AIB. Uh, I knew Danny, but also I knew President Jin from the time when he was at the World Bank with on board there with me at the same time. Um, look, let me try and give some context as to why I was so pleased to see the creation of the AIB. And I go back to a speech I gave here, I think, in 2015. Yes. It was here, wasn't it? On MDB and need for reform. Uh, there I was sitting as uh, president of EBRD, sort of a bit of self-criticism, really. I think I thought the system as a whole, uh, EBRD was slightly more innovative than other parts of the system, but system as a whole, I thought, was too focused on the views of the non-recipient shareholders rather than the recipients, um, and not really sufficiently focused on the needs and the emerging and changing and evolving needs of the recipients, actually. Uh, so a lot of repeat of the, pre of the business that they were doing before as well, even though the needs were changing. Too heavy and disproportionate in terms of transaction costs. I mean, see Chris here, and he's written about that. Uh, in terms of just uh, engaging, whether it's a private sector or public sector client with these institutions, and disproportionate. So the same sort of standards for very small loans as, as very large loans um, in the rules and processes. And of course, the shareholding structure of the legacy MDBs, I say, which uh, really hadn't changed enough to reflect the growing economic weight of emerging markets as well. And so their voice was rather muted in these institutions. And of course, uh, as Danny mentioned, a, a governance model that I thought uh, encouraged, frankly, interference uh, by non-recipients in the work of management at the detail level that was just ludicrous. Um, so uh, there was a lot of things I thought could be reformed. I saw, I think, little opportunity within the legacy MDBs for that reform. Of course, people like me tried our best, but that's why I was particularly pleased to see the AIB coming along. And Yes, maybe in the end it's an innovator rather than disruptor, but I'm sorry, but I th was really going for the disruption. <laughs> and um, and uh, so I, I was very much a strong supporter, as, as Sarah said, of the creation of AIB. 
Um, I thought the shareholding structure would give due weight to emerging markets. Uh, and there was a real possibility, I think, and I think Danny's talking about that now in terms of the next stages of the AIB, of actually focusing the bank more on the actual needs of particularly middle-income countries. So sustainable infrastructure, inequality issues, jobs, technological change, productivity, all those sort of things that actually I think legacy MDBs don't do enough of, in my view. They do quite a lot of policy work on those things. But actually, if you look at their operations, they're not doing a lot in, in those areas. Um, and that's why when I was president of EBRD, I, I think my staff thought I was slightly potty. I spent a lot of time actually engaging with the leadership of AIB. I went to Beijing a number of times. I was at the, um, at the launch of the uh, institution. I took part in strategy days uh, in Beijing to try and uh, help the AIB. And of course, we actually set up, President Jin and I, this AIB-EBID joint unit, actually under Danny. Uh, there and that was really to cement that relationship and I think that unit is still there. I, uh, it was headed first by Richard, a guy called Richard Jones, who was head of my office, who went there, and then of course now it's headed by an, uh, a lady called Nova Lee, who was also in my office. So this is a rather personalised, shall we say, approach. But also I think institutionally, EBID, which is still the more most recent of the legacy MDBs to be created thought it was in our interest to actually really try and help AIB and set up. So a lot of the work that was done on the sort of standards, trying to make them more proportionate, was EBRD staff actually going there and working there. In the first 100 staff that um, AIB had, 10 were from EBRD, yeah. either on secondment or, you know, actually transferred across. Um, so we, have, we put in a lot of effort to try and uh, help, uh, uh, help the institution actually just get it get going. Now, I think the biggest and most obvious um, innovation or disruption, um, depending on your taste, is the governance model for me. I mean, that's uh, because it was from day one and it was President Jin particularly uh, pushing it, but interestingly with some other supporters and, you know, someone like Shaukat Aziz, the former prime minister of uh, Pakistan, uh, who's written about this, who had come from Citibank into the world of development and could not understand why these uh, boards were sitting there, uh, coming from the banking system. He thought it was rather weird. But so President Jin got a network of people, interesting and important people, behind this uh, agenda. Uh, as it happens, um, and Lisa and I have just co-authored with two other people a paper on governance in MDBs, um, we went back over the history of the governance models and, uh, you know, right the way back to Bretton Woods as to why we'd ended up with the uh, resident board of directors. You know, Keynes had argued strongly. Mm. Actually, Keynes had argued exactly for the model AIB's got. Keynes is an institution. Yeah, so, um, uh, but he was uh, pretty much overruled by Harry Dexter White, the U.S. Treasury, who, of course, turned out to be a Soviet spy. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> um, so, but, uh, so Keynes had argued for this uh, approach. And I think... We, when we did our piece of work, and Lisa and I found essentially that the model of governance we have in most of the, in the legacy MDBs is very much is this resident board, and you can sometimes strike lucky, I'm Tamsin, I was very lucky to have Tamsin as a director, but, you know, frankly, it's a very variable quality of directors on the, in the BID board, and increasingly on the other boards too. And uh, quite often, a lot of the shareholding countries were using it to dump staff they didn't want anymore in their, in their civil services or put politicians to whom they owed favours 
go and live in London for a while. Nice place. There's Harrods. And so, um, <laughs> so uh, I, I jest, but, you know, essentially we had boards that were focusing much too much on operations, not enough on strategy. Uh, we had conflicts of interest, uh, quite clearly, uh, in the uh, representatives, represent, you know, really following their country's interests, much more the institution's interests. Uh, and we didn't have the right professional background for, for many of the directors as well. We gave options in our paper for reform. I mean, one, even if you have resident boards, you could actually have some job descriptions um, that actually set out what you might want from these people. Um, or you could move to the AIB model, the non-resident board um, that is either come, uh, attends virtually, doesn't meet that frequently. Uh, and actually, you do then get the uh, higher level um, directors, because they're actually back in their finance ministries and treasuries are sitting there, not having to be sent on secondment. Or more, more radically, which uh, I think is my, my preferred option, would be to replace um, uh, all boards, make them all non-resident, but actually with independent directors uh, who actually have the right professional background. Um, and you'd have the board of governors, which would be the shareholder level, uh, more like a corporate model, basically. And that's what I would prefer. But at least in my view, AIB has had this innovation, which has been a great success. It's the second option. It's the Keynes option, if you like. Um, the board is non-resident. Uh, it meets for very few occasions. Um, and I think it's cut the cost of governance. I mean, in terms of leanness, I mean, if you, when we did the comparison of budget on uh, your board, AIB, compared with DPRD, World Bank, and others, it's astonishingly um, low cost. And I, and I think of higher caliber of, overall. And I think this, we've, what AIB has shown over the six years is that this model is perfectly workable, actually, and quite effective. So this is, for me, a major success, actually, in the, you know, in the MDB world. Which brings me, I suppose, to the issue of uh, a challenge, in a way. Why is it that when AIB does some things that are good, and Danny mentioned a number of things, which is you, they don't actually get taken up? By the rest of the system. Now it could be, there's, I think Danny's thesis is that AIB does these things because they're good for it in its own context. So it doesn't yet, I think, see itself, at least my perception, as a system-wide player. Now, uh, as part of my engagement with AIB, I uh, insisted that they become, uh, President Jinder becomes a member of the MDB heads group. Interestingly, President Jin wasn't looking for that, uh, but I wanted him there because I thought he was doing some interesting things that the rest of us could learn from. There was a lot of opposition from the World Bank and others to this at the time um, because America was not a shareholder, would never be a shareholder of AIB. But I thought it was important. But I think there is this challenge for me that AIB is doing some interesting things, but the rest of the system is, un you know, not really impacted anyway, doesn't take them up, doesn't listen, doesn't seem to be even following very closely what's going on. And also AIB is not saying to the rest of the system, look, this could be good for you too. And which is, for me, I think uh, something I would like to see AIB do more of because you've got some really great people now at various levels who worked in the rest of the system, mm -hmm. who understand the other banks as well. And I think you, you can have a system-wide impact that is currently missing. At the moment, and governance will be one of those areas, but there'll be several others, I think, in the way. So I, I'll stop there because I think Annalisa might say more about the country level challenges we've seen in our research work as well. 
Thanks. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, Annalisa. We've done a lot of research on this. So again, um, lessons, advice that AIB management can uh, can use. Let me use some of our numbers and, and evidence on this, at least uh, uh, to tackle two different points, if I may. I mean, one is around the kind of visibility of the AIB at the country level. Danny has already kind of raised the kind of country um, engagement model. And the second one, which is not only for the AIB, I mean, uh, Danny has mentioned is the kind of support to a low carbon transition and a series of kind of uh, challenges uh, for the MDB. So... Last year, we, we asked uh, nearly 500 government officials uh, in 70 countries, so it's a really good sample, about their views on the kind of uh, relevance, the effectiveness, and the future of multilateral development banks. Um, and that included the, the AIB in the regional and non-regional member countries. So I have to say that the lack of data for and responses of, on the AIB was a finding in itself. Uh, um, more than 50% of respondents uh, actually didn't know that the AIB was active in the country, even though it was a non-member country and already borrowed from it. And again, I'm talking about countries where the AIB is, is, is in principle present. And then there was a clear message coming from government officials, and this is a kind of across all countries. I mean, 93 of respondents, percent of respondents actually, uh, would like to see a country office of each MDB with senior staff and operational staff. And very interestingly, if you're looking just at the East Asia and Pacific region, actually everybody said they want a country office, what 99% mm. of respondents. So this was a very clear, clear message. And again, as most of you might know, the Asian Development Bank has published a new operational strategy this week and a part of this, of the kind of new directions, there will be a much stronger decentralization process. So that's a kind of a response to, to, this, uh, to this kind of uh, request uh, also for client, from client countries. I do understand the kind of rationale of not having country offices and I do support the kind of decision of having at least the sub-regional hubs going forward. I think they will be crucial for the EIB to increase the visibility, in particular the working relations with national governments and the private sector. Let me be very brief on the kind of second challenge. And again, this is not only for the AIB, but it applies to uh, to all the other MDBs. I mean, again, in, in the country survey, we, we ask government officials where they would like MDBs to operate in the future. And actually, it wasn't really surprising, and I'll explain myself in a second, but climate change adaptation and mitigation didn't come on top of the priorities. Um, others, I mean, infrastructure, uh, energy, transport, uh, but not really focusing on the kind of um, on the low carbon transition. Why is that the case? I mean, there could be many motivations. I mean, it doesn't apply to the IAB. I mean, this could be a crowding out effect on the country allocation away from development priorities. I'm saying perceived one. Countries might not be willing to borrow uh, when the benefits of the project reach other countries and particularly where contributed little to climate change and actually they're suffering most from it. Concessional finance will be an incentive, but Danny has kind of mentioned very clearly earlier on, uh, this doesn't apply to every institution, not every institution has a concessional window, or at least at the scale of uh, um, as much as the World Bank either has. So what's the solution here? I mean, first of all, there's a clear step, uh, and that's around the change in narrative and vision about delivering a low carbon transition. Climate and development uh, are not substitute or alternatives, but they can go hand in hand. Uh, 
a climate resilient uh, development strategy will reduce exposure to risk, and that's just one example. But we need also to acknowledge that there are trade-offs. Uh, they have to be understood and addressed, uh, particularly when it comes to social protection programs with skills demanded and jobs change. But there's also the need to show client countries that a low carbon transition is possible. And MDBs, including the IB, can rethink about the technical offer and support countries to craft uh, climate smart de uh, development strategies, which offer more energy security, <coughs> lower and more predictable operating costs, and also co-benefits like job creation. But finally, and that's my last point, uh, instruments should also address the constraints that many countries, particularly emerging countries, middle-income countries, uh, uh, might have when it comes to, a low carbon to financing a low-carbon transition. And we need to remember middle-income countries are central uh, to the fight on the climate crisis, with, uh, and there's a role for the MDBs there. But middle-income countries require guarantees, insurance, buy-down of terms. I mean, they were mentioned earlier on, but for the other equivalent countries, there's a need also to expand the regional and thematic windows on top of the country allocation. And I'm speaking uh, more broadly across MDBs, and I'll stop here. Thank you very much, Annalisa. I think you got some pretty good advice from both of them, especially, <laughs> you know, ahead of COP. I don't know if you want to react to any of this, but I already have a number of questions from the online audience. Um, um, I could react very briefly or sure, take sure, the sure. question, whatever you prefer. I mean, um, so it's very interesting to think that we are applying the Keynesian model of government, governance uh, long after the Bretton Woods um, uh, discussions. We have taken one step in the involvement of independent people which is in our audit and risk committee, we have two independent members um, who bring deep professional expertise in those areas. And that does contribute a lot to supporting the board yeah. members in, in those issues. Um, one of them is, a, is a, a, a senior figure from the Bank of England. So I'm sure that person will be willing to come here and uh, talk to you if you if you would like, um, and maybe happy to talk about other topics. Um, but you know, and it really contributes a lot, actually. So I think your you, the, the point there is um, is good. Um, AIB definitely does see it as a player in the in the in the in the system. Um, so I mean, after your initial impetus, we play our role very much in the heads meetings and the sectoral meetings, and also in G20 and other and other fora. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily follow. I, I don't think that necessarily follows that we should use that platform to proselytize for our model and argue for change in other institutions. One has to respect the governance of each of the institutions, and it's I think more for the shareholders if they want to pick up lessons from one institution to apply in a in a in a in a in, a, in another. Um, but we're also very transparent. The information is there, and we're we're very happy to to to, to talk about it. And I agree with your assessment. That the non-resident board works well. It's also interesting. I mean, you know, the majority of our shareholding is emerging market shareholders, and I think the lesson of creating AIB shows that the organisations led by, you know, majority shareholding from developing countries can work just as well to just as high standards and just as good as as good um, uh, as good uh, 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 governance. Um, and Lisa, it's what you said is really interesting from your survey. So actually, we've done something this year that's. Um, uh, we're still in the process of concluding it, but which I think it doesn't normally get done by our category of institutions, which is we've done our own client survey. Um, and there is some common ground between the feedback you got and the and the uh, and the, 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 the feedback. So so it's a, it's a it's a, it's a, um, you know a reinforcement and um, and I, and I think we do have work to do to let the AIB be better understood. Uh, I think that is a that is a that's a, a totally fair challenge. 
Um, and I think we need to, you know, our people need to be on the ground more. I would contend whether that requires an, uh, uh, an, an office or not. And actually, you know, one of the, I'm very interested in digital transformation in, the, in these institutions. And, um, you know, we, if you think about the way your, you know, uh, your retail bank has been transformed in the, last, in the last 20 years, you know, our institutions work basically in the same way that they have for, for, for a long, long time. So can you make better use of digital to have a real relationship with the clients that doesn't necessarily always require someone to be sitting in an office? Although there are parts where you definitely do need to have the people. Um, on the ground. And so that's part of the motivation of setting up uh, our hub. And I totally agree with you about the focus on middle income countries for climate. But I'll stop there. Otherwise, yeah, so we, we only have just 10 minutes for questions. But, you know, maybe it's not your job to proselytize, but it's definitely the job of a think tank to, you know, so to influence <laughs> how, how the system can change learning the lessons that they need to be learned. So just just a provocation to my colleagues. Right. Let's open um, um, for questions. Uh, I'll take my gosh, it's a lot. So be brief, please introduce yourselves. I also have questions from the online audience and then we'll have, you know, to have just a quick fire of uh, round of replies. Um, I'll start with Tamsin. It should be a roving mic. There we go. Thanks very much. Tamsin Barton from ICAI, the UK's foreign aid watchdog. Uh, I've got a comment and a question. Um, the comment is, I think of the innovations that should be taken up, the one that I would particularly commend you on is the way in which you're able to rely on the procedures of others, that, that leanness, something that I used to work on when I was at the EIIB, uh, sorry, the EIB, uh, on, we used to call it mutual reliance. And when I was on SUMA's board, we actually managed to make some progress in procurement, making it easier to co-finance. So you talked about bureaucracy within MDBs. You know, that is so much worse between MDBs. So, that, so that's my comment. I think there really is room for more to be done, especially on environmental and social standards. Uh, on the environmental and social standards, given my interest as a watchdog, the thing I was pondering to myself is what's the mechanism for the AIB's external accountability in relation to safeguards. So, you know, we've got the World Bank's inspection panel in EIB. We used to have the EU ombudsman uh, or ombudsperson. So be interested to know what you have in addition, obviously, to all your internal checks and balances. Thanks, Tamsit. Gentlemen, next to you, if you just pass the mic. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name's John Gibb, and I used to work in DFID, and I'm long retired. Um, I think a, a point for, for both Danny and for Suma is that uh, the Achilles heel for development has always been the atrocious standards of governance in beneficiary countries. Now, I would like to know why this always fails to get on the agenda of any board meeting um, from the bank and the fund and, and then cascading down to MDBs of, of different sorts, uh, because until standards of governance improve, then whatever project, whatever sector you work in, is unlikely to succeed and be sustainable and meet its objectives. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ganesh? Uh, thanks. Ganesh Vignaraja, ODI. I used to be at ADB. Um, first question to either Suma or Danny is uh, 15 billion by 2030 seems tiny amount, uh, given the crisis we have today. Okay, but still seems tiny. Uh, shouldn't you be more ambitious? Um, second, um, how this issue of country offices versus uh, regional hubs 
how do you avoid country capture? Because that's a real problem, right, of country officers and country directors basically becoming localized. Um, and the third question is these cross-border projects. How do you really get buy-in uh, when, you know, the net benefits accrue to one country and not the others? And Sorry, difficult questions. With yeah. uh, So there was one last question from um, Bianca there. Yes, yes. Hi, uh, I'm Bianca Gatzel. I work very closely with, with Annalisa. And uh, something I wanted to, to pick up on in, in the theme of AIB as a disruptor, uh, especially thinking of the special fund for less developed countries, what do you see as the biggest obstacle or drawback of current concessional funds in your same borrowing countries without necessarily naming and shaming? And what do you see the, the role of the AIB in kind of response to, to those obstacles? Thank you. Thank you very much. And we've got a few questions from the online audience, so I'll just put them to you. So the first one is from Patrick Walsh. Sure you all remember. Patrick, um, as a former board member of the EBRT and previously director general in EIB, I would very much like to hear how panelists think we can further improve cooperation amongst all MDBs to accelerate joint financing of investment projects. Um, and then two questions um, from Ju Wang, lecturer at Leiden University and Associate Fellow at Chatham House. Um, so he asks um, to Danny, um, whereas the AIB was designed to focus on infrastructure lending, it has actually contributed largely to COVID-19 emergency assistance in the past two years. Does this flexibility in the mandate mean that we could expect the bank to expand its policy scope to include other domains in the future? And the other question is whether the bank has any plan to establish a permanent mechanism for offering grant aid and concessional loans. And then we have a third um, question from someone who didn't share <laughs> their affiliation that says, as a growing number of countries graduate from concessional assistance to non-concessional borrowing and other forms of engagement with MDBs, is there a baseline commitment to allow for increased support in the remaining poor countries? and for allocation of concessional funding to countries in crisis and post-conflict reconstruction. Right, you go. <laughs> yes, and yeah, we have a total of five minutes before we, we end. We can go over by you know, a few minutes if needed. Okay, um, let me try and give some quick responses. Um, uh, so on ENS standards, we have a uh, uh, our CEIU, Complaints Resolution, uh, evaluation and integrity unit. So it brings together the evaluation functions, the external complaints, uh, what the uh, function that you um, that you described, and also the integrity functions into one unit. The head of which um, is uh, reports directly to the board. Um, but we're trying to the, the model is trying to avoid the sort of institutionalized confrontation that seems to have been built in in other places. To of course you have to have the in, you have the independence, but to try and be independent but engaged. So, um, for example, the head of that body uh, is an observer in our management meetings. So he has, you know, he, he has, he knows what's going on and he can also offer advice. Um, so that doesn't, that doesn't fetter his discretion for evaluations or early learning assessments or indeed for implementing the project effective people's mechanism when complaints arise. But it's, it's again, it's trying to be a, a, a subtly different model. Now, it'll take time for the, you know, for, for, as it were, for the complaints to come that allow these systems to be tested and for the projects to be completed and the evaluations go on. But we feel, again, that's an area where a little bit of institutional innovation was warranted. And, and so we're uh, trying something um, slightly different. Um, to John's question, 
it's a, it's a, it's a, the question of governance is a really interesting and, and, and important one. And, you know, sitting here in London, one has to say that not every country has perfect governance. Um, uh, um, we are, we're a project finance institution. So we operate on the basis that our policies are about how we make sure that, that, that things are done properly at the project level. But we do also seek to kind of learn lessons from, from, from that. Um, and to and, and especially where environmental and social standards and uh, procurement and so on are, are concerned, to, to 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 share those lessons more more broadly. Um, we've worked also with a body called the MCDF, which is a new uh, facility that's been established, um, which has specifically as its remit to spread the reach of high standards for connectivity projects uh, to new partners, to new organisations, and so forth. And and we found a lot of interest from, um, you know, organizations in China and, and in other countries that invest in, in infrastructure projects to learn from AIB, you know, what are the right standards and approaches to, to some of these issues that need to be, um, uh, that need to be applied. Um, uh, I, I take Ganesh's in, uh, uh, encouragement to, 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 to grow faster and, and, and further, but we also, I mean, this is a current, very, current topic about you know what are the constraints of the capital model that we that we have and in a sense i would say how that 15 billion is used is is, is even more important than than whether it's you know 15 or 16 or 20 um and that's particularly about how do we use that to uh, to, to to innovate to mobilize um uh, and to do kind of exemplary work that can then help help systems to grow which then mobilize much more finance on their own so one area that AIB has done some work in is about um, capital markets, especially capital markets for sustainable finance in, 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 in Asia, um, and also supporting the development of infrastructure as an, as an asset class that can attract investors. Um, we have one project in Singapore in particular, which I think is really helping to push forward in that, in that direction. And if that can work, then the multiplier effect of your, of your, of your, of your, of your initial financing is, um, uh, uh, is, 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 is huge. Um, I can't read my handwriting on some of the other questions. I'm sorry. Um, there are so many of them. Um, uh, but I think um, further improving cooperation among MDBs. I mean, I think Suma's reflections on this would be would be very interesting because you know we talk about the MDBs working as a system. Um, I think MDBs cooperate quite well in some areas. I think climate, especially. I think some of the things that that, that we do that you referred to, Tamsin, about you know being able to take others' policies and and and. Uh, and work and apply that in our own case is one example of where we could, we could, um, uh, we could get closer together. There's also been some um, exposure swaps between MDBs, for example, to help manage the, the risk better, which is also you know, interesting examples of of um, uh, of, of cooperation. Um, to Ju Wang's question, we're not we're we're, um, we're we're not we're not planning to expand our remit. Our articles of agreement are there. They have a clear mandate, which we which we will which gives an enormous there's an enormous amount of need. For investments within that space, which does include infrastructure like health and and and, and so forth, and also um, I think does include being being part of um, coordinated international response to crises, and that's something which we should see you know an ongoing role for AIB, not least because climate change is causing you know the the, the, the sort of speed and scale of natural disasters caused by climate change is just going to accelerate. We've seen these terrible floods in Pakistan <clears throat> this autumn which is you know heartbreaking imagery mm. um and and the impact on people is grave but that's going to happen more and more and more and so how mdbs can can mobilize but also 
um, you know, almost have anticipatory crisis response built into your projects in terms of adaptation, resilience, and so forth, is going to be a critically important uh, issue as well. I think there was an additional set of questions that were basically asking whether you are um, thinking about establishing a permanent concessional um, lending facility. Um, we're not thinking about establishing a permanent concessional lending facility, except the special fund window for less developed members that we have. So um, we're trying to keep it simple. And I think I think there are there are there are good reasons why there are many trust funds in this world, but and and they 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 achieve particular impact, but they also add to complexity. And so um, we've we've not gone down that route. We have um, a couple of special funds of our own, one for project preparation and one this interest rate buy down facility that I mentioned for low income members, which we're currently discussing with donors. Um, there may be room for one or two more for particular purposes, but we 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 would rather say let's work in partnership with other financial sources that have those characteristics rather than seeking to replicate everything within within AIB. I think that's a better model for us. Suma, any... Okay, well, let me just pick up a few uh, questions. I mean, very nicely, John here, who I worked with in the UK delegation at the World Bank many years ago. Um, John asked a very good question, and I think my answer to many of these questions will be a lot on governance, and it's a lot to do with incentives and shareholder appetite. My experience at EBRD was the incentives of management have tended to be get as much money out the door as you can, volume driven, and therefore, you know, how much I as a leader might say, look, I do think Azerbaijan's a bit of a problem. Um, the management is trying to get the money out the door. And so you have this internal tussle going on. But at the same time, my observation was the shareholders frankly hypocritical on this issue. And let's be frank about it, it's an EU-dominated institution. Would they ever be upset about Hungary? No, never. They will never say anything on our board about Hungary, for example. Um, so they tended to pick on non-EU states if they were going to be a government government. So we have this unfortunate um, thing where this is the EBRD, of course, which has a political economy mandate. It has an ideological mandate around democracy and multi-party systems and so on. Um, but we couldn't get that dialogue to be even um, across the countries. Uh, and it required essentially some members of management really to push this agenda, uh, I think, hard. Linking to that, I would say this whole question of joint financing is also about leadership and incentives. Again, if you look at the incentive structures in most of these banks for staff, it's how much you can book on your own book. You know, in other words, your own lending. Uh, and it's not, you're not given a lot of points and your annual bonus is, you know, isn't based on how much you can do with him across uh, across the boundary. It's actually how much you can do yourself. So again, it requires senior management to push that sort of agenda or change the incentive framework. And we did a bit of that at EBRD. We did actually focus more on impact as we went along, but still the DNA of the institutions is about, you know, volumetrics as such and on own book as well. But that is something that should, we should work on much more. And I think Tamsin's right about the, and Danny about the, you know, these trying to get uh, relying on each other's procedures, that should make it easier in the future to do that, I think. Last one I'll just pick up is Ganesha's point um, about country offices and country capture. Um, Danny knows that I think this is a, an issue for AIB, in my view, mm. because as their portfolio grows, even if they don't do policy dialogue with countries, they're going to have portfolio problems. Uh, everyone does, um, and I know you've had a few, uh, and what they end up doing is hiring consultants to solve them. And I think that's an expensive route to do. And the country office actually is, and 
but the country offers there is a risk of country capture. But I'm a believer in that development finance is the only, not the only thing we as institutions are doing, MDBs are doing. It's about building an empathetic relationship with the leaders of those countries to try and get them to do things that they may not see as in their personal or party political interest at the time. And you cannot do that by technology, digital, or by sitting in Beijing or London. I think you've got to be on the ground to build that relationship. There is a risk of capture, of course, in that, but you know that's that's certainly my experience. That empathetic relationships are better built by actually being located uh, in these countries. But I would I would watch out for building large country offices. I think that's often the problem, uh, and then they have an impetus and a bureaucracy of their own. But I think this idea of regional hubs is a, at least a first push in the right direction. Um, Abu Dhabi and you know, try and persuade him yet again come to Astana to the International Financial Center there um, for Central Asia as a hub. So I think, but the thing, this is the right approach um, to, to start with at least. So I would support that. Excellent. Annalisa. Well, uh, you've already kind of addressed all the questions. The only point I would like to make, I mean, six years ago, we were here talking about the future of multilateral development banks. Asuma gave his, his keynote speech. We were talking about the EIB as a disruptor. Now, as an innovator, we should, we should kind of reflect upon that. We shouldn't lose the momentum that we have now on the reform of MDBs. I mean, there's the roadmap for the World Bank that was approved at the time of, well, at least the mandate at the time of the annual meetings. There's the big initiative from Miat Motley and the UN Deputy Secretary General of the UN, Amina Mohammed, on reforming the international financial institutions. And I take Sarah's challenge that we should be more provocative and share, actually, the lessons from the innovators or the disruptors. <laughs> Excellent, excellent, great. Well, thank you so much, Dani, Suma, Annalisa. I think it's been an incredibly insightful conversation. I have, you know, learned a lot personally, and you know, if my team actually takes from this, that we can further sort of bring the lessons from your innovation, you know, to influence the system-wide change that we are trying, you know, to uh, help change. I think that'd be great. I hope you also, you know, benefited from uh, the much. questions and the reflections uh, on the challenges ahead for, as you get to 2030 to finalize implementation of the strategy. But thanks, this was an incredibly good conversation. Uh, thanks to the online audience for all uh, the questions and the reflections. And of course, to all of you who are here, we are gonna move into a closed session um, now with you know a few of them. But in the meantime, please join me in thanking the panel. Thank you very much. Thank you.